Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. So today we have the wonderful honor to have Bill Gentry on the podcast. Yes, this is yes. so great to have Bill on the podcast. Say hi, Bill. Hey, I'm I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. This <laughs> oh, yes. yeah, this is gonna be great. So, quick intro on Bill Gentry. Bill Gentry is a leadership researcher, trainer, speaker, author, and industrial organizational psychologist with a specialty of helping new and aspiring leaders. He's currently the assistant vice president of career and professional development at High Point University which is in High Point, North Carolina, which is, of course, of course, whole, of course, the home furnishings and hosiery capital of the world. It is. It is. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and before that, uh, Bill was a senior research scientist, trainer and director at the Center for Creative Leadership, a top ranked global provider of executive education and leadership development. He's an accomplished researcher with research interests uh, that are wide and, and broad within this umbrella of uh, leadership and so forth. Um, he's published in more than 50 peer-reviewed publications. He's been featured in more than 50 internet and news articles, such as Forbes.com, The Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, Harvard Business Review, Chief Learning Officer, and much more. He's the author of a best-selling book, Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For, A Guide for New Leaders, which we'll certainly touch on quite a bit here today. And Bill holds a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Georgia. So, Bill, here's a formal welcome to the Indigo podcast. Well, thank you all. And I've listened to you all since day one. So this is really an honor for me to be here. <laughs> awesome. What? Are you, yeah. are you, are you I'm the one. smoke? I'm, I'm the one. I'm the one who's listening to this. It's like whenever I see someone say, hey, I read your book. I said, oh, you're the one who actually, published, who actually bought it from Amazon. I've been trying to find you. It's great. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know, it really is a pleasure to have you. And uh, even if you were not a listener, you know, we would still invite you on here because you have <laughs> deep expertise and wonderful insights to share with the world. So, um, you know, I guess a place to start with you, Bill, is tell us about your current role at High Point University. What do you do and what do you find exciting about what you do? Yeah, this is this role is something that I never thought imaginable when I was in college, when I was in graduate school, when I was you know, 10 years out of graduate school. But what I'm doing here at High Point University, you know, every university or college or most of them, I should say, has probably some sort of department. They might know it as career services or whatever that is. And so our office at Career and Professional Development, you know, our mission is to educate and empower all students to translate experiential learning to the professional world as it is going to be. Mm. That's what we do day in and day out. So our team helps students with Things that you might think about normally, like how do you make a great resume? Or, you know, we get the students who come in. My parents told me I need to have a resume. Can you tell me what that is? Like, <laughs> well, let's let's first say it's a resume. And yes, we can help you uh, with that. Um, cover letters, you know, LinkedIn profiles. Uh, what, what the heck do I need to do with my life? You know, I was in college. I was uh, pre-med for six weeks because my Filipino mother told me I was going to be a doctor and I had to be. So when you figure out that this isn't really fun, you know, what sort of career can I have with this major or I want to change majors or what major should I have? What career should I have? So we help with major exploration and career exploration. Uh, we do all sorts of really great assessments that actually are from a bunch of uh, IO psychologists. Um, and it's all kind of melded together there to really help, you know, with whatever profile you have based on these assessments. These are the types of careers on ONET that are the best fit for you, that sort of thing. Um, mock interviews. Uh, and then we do, uh, you know, grad school uh, research and applications, help people for internship searches, internship jobs, uh, the, the like there. And then we also, since I came in, I really wanted to up our game in terms of offering certain seminars or workshops. So it's not just how do you build a great resume, but um, how do you uh, resolve conflict and how do you give and receive feedback? Uh, how do you influence others? How do you communicate well? Um, those are all things that I wanted to make sure that our office uh, was able to do uh, for our students here at High Point University. So let me let me interject this. If you're somebody that's going to a university, grad school, it doesn't matter, and they don't have a career development office, 
don't go there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then and then second, right? Look for the I mean, Bill, you you got peers in this place. How many of them have an IO psych background like you have? Uh in my office, zero. No, but in, uh, in other career development offices. Like in the universities, yeah. Golly, that's a good question. In other universities, I I really don't know. It's not a traditional career track, I think, for an IO psychologist to go to. I, I'm gonna say next to none. <laughs> Probably. And the and the reason why is because I talk to friends that have their kids coming out, right? They're coming out of mm-hmm. college, you're like, oh my gosh, he's a numbskull in high school. He barely made it past the cop. Hey, go talk to this. And they're not getting any support. You know, I've seen some of them like, well, we put together a resume book to hand to potential employers. I don't know of a single employer that looks at daggone resume books. Well, it's all, I wouldn't say all, it's mostly these uh, AI sort of computers that look through. And if your resume does not match the qualifications and the skills and the KSAs that the job posting has, it's not even getting to a person who averages six seconds of looking at it in the first place. So it's got to get past that applicant tracking system in the first place, which is a, you know, that, that AI thing where it says, does your resume match all of the different, as I said, KSAs before? And if it doesn't, it doesn't even get passed on to a person. So you don't even have a shot at getting so uh, at getting an interview. So, you know, we tell our students, it's don't spray and pray. Uh, don't spray <laughs> that one resume and pray you're going to get it. You've got to tailor your resume to every single job posting you have. And more importantly, since 80% of the jobs out there are never posted, you've got to network like crazy. Yeah. And networking is so important. In life. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you should look for the, I mean, I, they're lucky to have you, Bill. I mean, the, well, the amount of insanity <laughs> that you can bring as far as like insanity, as far as intellectual capability, evidence-based practice to conducting a job search and building your career. And that's why, that's why we bring people like you on here, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So what do you like most about that kind of array of things that you get to do from, from the uh, changing the resume to the resume to, um, to all the, the actual, you know, uh, kind of leadership development type work that you're doing with these, some of these workshops and so forth. What's the most exciting piece about it? What's the most rewarding part about your job? Well, when I, when I was in graduate school, I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Uh, I loved IO psych when I actually discovered it as a senior in, in college. And then I got to UGA and I was, you know, I thought go to consulting. That's where all the money goes to. So, that, you know, I want to be rich, do all those things. <laughs> and then I thought, well, go into teaching because, you know, I played golf with my professors uh, often during graduate school. It's, I think it's what helped me get into graduate school. They needed a fourth. <laughs> so I was, I was, that was fun. I was like, hmm, summer's off. And then as you come to find out, professors don't have quote unquote summers off. No. <laughs> but research uh, and trying to help people be the best that they can be, that's what really turned me on into what I could do for my career. That's why I loved being at uh, Center for Creative Leadership. I was able to do the research. I was able to translate that research into practical, actionable content that leaders can use. And yes, you know, I could do the the journal thing for the academic side of things, but I also want to see how can the everyday person who has to be in, you know, their cubicle or their office or right now in their home office, um, how can we help them be better? And so how can we translate all that knowledge into things that they can do in the moment, uh, in the now? And that's why I love doing a CC. I love training programs there and designing programs there and, and helping people to do that and being a, on the, more the director side, helping the team that I led, you know, be more successful. That was something that really turned me on to what I could do to, uh, for my own career. And now at high point, I get to do all those things. And instead of focusing on 30 to retirement age, I get to do it to 18 to 20 year olds who have the next 50 plus years of their life ahead of them. Wow. And helping them understand that you have a chance to set the world on fire and let's get you to a place to do that when you get out and graduate from High Point University. And that's a really cool thing to see a student go from, you know, one of the, one of the first students I ever worked with, he was, a, um, he was a sophomore at the time. He'd never had an internship before. And he had a mock interview with one of these local organizations that helps young kids preschool age do soccer. And uh, he had, he'd never had a real interview before. So I had a mock interview with him. And just to see how he grew up, and then graduated this past uh, summer, and he had an awesome internship with a highly recognized consulting firm 
uh, in Florida, and he did so well with that consulting firm. They offered him a full-time job on the spot a year before he graduated. Wow. So just to see that sort of transformation for that for that you know one student that I had, but I see that multiple times, not just for me, but with my team who does that every single minute of every single day. That's a pretty cool thing to to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's phenomenal. You know, I'm actually reminded as you're talking about this of my wife's uh, grandfather, and so he was an educational psychologist, and he started. He joined the faculty of John Carroll University up in Cleveland in 1949, and he was on the faculty there for decades upon decades, actually, until he died, um, you know, a handful of years ago. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating was he did a lot of work kind of similar to what you do. Uh, He worked with students to try to help them figure out where they wanted to go in their lives and so forth. And um, what was amazing is that, you know, when he passed away and even as he was kind of, you know, getting towards that point in his life, in his older years, uh, just the, the the people coming out of the woodwork saying thank you, you know, people in their 40s and 50s and, and maybe even a little older saying, you know, I talked to uh, Dr. Nossel back in uh, whenever and he really, you know, helped me out. Um, I can just imagine that's really rewarding and it will be uh, for you as you continue yeah. in this path. Yeah. And I've had students, you know, reach out to me um, just to say thanks or update me on where they are. And I've been here almost three years now. So I've had almost a full cycle of freshman and senior. I still got a, a year or two more to get that. But, yeah. Um, even the, even the folks who um, just stopped in my office once and they found something they want to let me know. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, organizations need to grab hold of some of your passion, Bill, because it's really about that next generation of leadership. We always renew our talent pathways, our thoughts. And then I love how you're talking about the passion because a lot of people say, well, you know, the youth are just passionate and naive, right? They're going to crash and be another, you know, cog or out there. But that's not true. There's ways to do it. And our university, I think really, if you think about, you know, we we call ourselves a premier life skills university. Mm. We are just really focused on not just what you learn in the classroom, which is so important, the theories you learn and and what you learn in that classroom, but also how do you apply that to the professional world? Um, whether you do go on to graduate school or professional school or law school or medical school, or you get that job or an internship or your volunteer opportunity, right. what are you going to learn that's going to help set yourself apart? Uh, you know, and then to your point, when you're kind of introducing me, you know, my big passion has been around helping people be better leaders, especially if you've never led before. And, and we all know if, if any of us have been in a leadership position or we've seen someone uh, be part of, uh, go into that leadership position. It is one of the difficult, most difficult things you're ever going to do. For sure. And so I want to help for our students here. I want to help prepare them for, Hey, the, this is the reality of what it's going to be like if you want to lead you. And, and part of it is, you know, the youth that these 18 to 22 year olds, they have such great big dreams that they want to do. I mean, I talked to them. I'm, I'm also director of the Siegfried Leadership Fellows Program here. So I get, nice. we get the best of the best of, of these students who want to actually focus on leadership for the four years that they're here. And we built a program for them to, to do that. Um, and some of these students, they're like, they have their head on straight as an 18 year old and they know exactly what they're going to do. And some of them are like, yeah, I want the corner office when I'm 22 years old. And, you know, I want all these. Ifs. Okay, let, let, let's talk about what the realities are. And if that's really what you want, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort and you can do it, but it's not going to happen as soon as you graduate, believe me. And you're not going to get a six figure salary as soon as you graduate with a company car and, and the corner office and, and gold plated toilet and all those things. It's, it's not going to happen most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And besides um, gold plate yeah. toilets are out. Like I think <laughs> the, right. the museum even got yeah. or somebody stole the museum's yeah. toilet. I can't remember what it was. Or Enron, I think. Yeah. Got yeah. them all. That's right. But it's that That's passion right. coupled with discipline and facts. You know, if you come into college, you're a ball full of passion. You can't wait to set the world on fire. Well, hey, let's put gas on that fire. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You don't need to lose your passion. No, it's not like at you're all. gonna have to get these extra. I mean, we were talking with um it's uh Todd Do It on a podcast and it was, Mm -hmm. you know, these kids will be like, okay, I'm going to apply to some NGOs overseas and work on big problems like, you know, starvation or something. And they don't have the education or skill set yet. But the, the, the answer needs to be stop being so passionate. No, that's the wrong answer, right? Right. The right answer is let's put some gas on that passion and put some discipline and knowledge with it. So Mm -hmm. you can actually 
do something. Yeah. Right? It's such a joy and a pleasure to work with a student who wants to be helped and is proactive and wanting to mm. do the work. And that's when, whenever our team works with any student, we know whether that student has been here because their parents have told them or if they really want to be here. And it's just a joy to work with all of our students, but particularly the ones that want to be here and will put in the work to do whatever it takes. It's, it's awesome to, to help yeah. those types of students. You know, one thing that you mentioned here that I think is really useful and important is this idea of, you know, what we would call in, in Iowa psychology, the realistic job preview. And you mm-hmm. kind of mentioned it as, uh, I, I believe, I'm, if I'm remembering it, you're, how you rolled, this just rolled off of your tongue. But you said, you know, that, you're, that you, in your role, you're very interested in translating experiential learning into the world as it yep. really is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really great way to put it. And, uh, you know, so how do you, what's, what's kind of your overall approach? If you've got a, a new student, perhaps who, uh, you know, comes into your office and just kind of stumbles in there and says, Hey, uh, Dr. Gentry, Oh, you're the, you're the, uh, you're the guy running this place. What, what, how should I approach, you know, career development here? I am a a freshman, a sophomore, maybe, and I want to be thinking a little bit more long-term. Um, what should I be thinking about? Informational interviews and networking are the two biggest things, particularly for younger students that they can do right now. Um, an informational interview can give you so much information about Hey, if I want to be an accountant, what is that on a day-to-day basis? If I want to be an IO psychologist, what does that even mean? You yeah, know? before before you spit out yeah. with a master's or PhD in something to get right. into a job and you're like, oh my God, right. this is horrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The sooner you can figure that out, whether hey, I feel like I can do this on a day-in, day-out basis or not, the better off you're going to be. And with those informational interviews, you can ask so many things about advice. And we tell our students these things are, you're not trying to ask for a job or an internship. You're asking for advice. Mm. People, the, the, the one thing that people love doing to talk about is themselves. So if you're able to have a 15 to 20 minute conversation about, hey, can you tell me how you got into this position? What sort of education did you need? Do you like what you do? What do you like doing? Uh, what do you like about your job? What do you hate about your job? Um, you know, what sort of advice would you give an 18 year old about getting into this industry or getting into this career, getting into this organization that can be so valuable to, uh, students right now. And actually, if you think about it, heck, we just had, I think the numbers just came out that we had just the worst, uh, economic contraction ever. And we've got what, 10 million or 10% unemployment, 30, 40 million unemployed. It doesn't matter how old you are. These informational interviews can help. And we tell our students what a great way to introduce yourself to LinkedIn. You know, when when I was a college student, we didn't have LinkedIn. You'd have to, like, you know, call people or we barely had email. I mean, it was just archaic type of email with LinkedIn. Now you could literally ask someone on the other side of the world to have a 15 minute conversation about their career. You could literally ask the CEO of a company whether they have 15 minutes. If they don't, hey, that's okay, but at least you got to try. Tell our students, if you think about baseball, the, 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 the Hall of Fame folks miss seven out of 10 times in the ball. So if you're able to get just a couple people out of 10 to, to reply and say, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind having uh, 15 minutes to talk to you about that. What a great opportunity for 18 to 22 year olds or anyone to reach out to people who they want to know. So informational interviews, and then just by the fact that you're reaching out, you're networking. And I've come to know that networking is so important. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a really great fan of Adam Grant's work and the whole give and take book that, he's, mm-hmm. that he has and a lot of his research uh, that he has. Networking is a big part of that research. Networking is a big part of my research, too. Uh, and so I just believe that, again, as we talked about before, 70 to 80 percent of the jobs are never posted. It's gotten through your networks. It's gotten through, hey, um, I just found out that this person's leaving. It's not even posted yet. I know who you are. We just had a 15 minute conversation. You might be a really good fit for this. Mm-hmm. Let me talk to my HR person and then get you in. That's how it works. And that's how it works really well. And if students are able to, or professionals, anyone, if right. you're able to think about it in that way and networking is not a, you know, ground nosing butt kissing type of thing or a way to say, Hey, I need to get as many people on LinkedIn or as many friends on, you know, yeah. Networking's not about likes. So snap face. (laughs) Yes. That's a business model right there. (laughs) Snap face, the anti-social. So, so what is networking then bill? It's not, it's not harassing people, right? It's not gathering a bunch of followers. What's networking. 
networking for me is an opportunity for me to understand how I can help other people. And that's kind of how I try to help mm. students or anyone. When we talk about understand the importance of it. It's, you know, it is part of it. How can they help you? But I try to go about is how can I help them uh, with, with anything? And so if I'm an 18 to 20 year old student, I'm trying to network. One of the things I might want to think about is how hey, I might not be able to help them now. And Adam talks about this in his work. Networking is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, they might be able to help you now, but you will definitely be able to help them later. Maybe you can help them now. If not, you can help them later. You can help them five years from now, 10 years from now. Or you're going to be in a position where 15, 20 years from now, you're going to have an 18 to 20 year old student asking you the same thing that you're doing. So you'd be able to give back in that way and networking. So in that case, networking for me, uh, just to kind of sum up is how can I be of service and of help to other people in their time of need? And so being able to understand it and and enhance my network, both our, our strong ties and our weak ties and other people that we have, if you're able to do that, think you're going to have a really strong type of network. And the, the work that I know about networking in terms of what networks uh, look like for effective leaders, mm. uh, I get this from uh, Kristen Cullen Lester, who is a friend of mine. Uh, she worked with me at, at CCL and now she's she used to be at the University of Houston Business School. I think she just went to Ole Miss now mm. uh, in Mississippi in their business school. Her research and a lot of others in the networking literature really focus on three things. And, and in my book, I call it your network has to be odd. And when I talk about odd, it's not strange or, or weird. Odd is stands for open, diverse, and deep. So you want your network to be open. You want your network to be diverse. You want it to be deep. Uh, if you can have your network be those three things as a leader, you're going to be really powerful in terms of the type of great work that you can do in collaboration with others at your organization or um, at your nonprofit or at your place of worship or whatever, you know, leader role that you have. Right. So, but if you're 18, 20 years old mm-hmm. and you want to take, well, open, diverse, and deep, well, I'm 18, I'm just starting to build yeah. this network. Right. Yeah. Um, what, and I don't have a whole lot of skills to offer. What are some ways for a young person to, to begin that network journey? The first way for me, and because I'm I'm more introverted uh, than extroverted, and it's I know it's really really difficult for students, especially if you're 18 or 19 and you've been head down in your work uh, all your life, and and that's kind of how how you've been, and you don't you're not the extroverted type of person. Start, just start, just make an effort and start. Uh, that's the best thing that you can do. The other thing I tell people is, you know, have one or two go-to questions that allow people to open up and talk. And I usually say it's not a yes/no question; it's more of a, you know, tell me something. Why, why are you so passionate about your job? Tell me something that you love doing about your job. What's a what's a really great thing that you're looking forward to this week in your job? That will get people to open up and talk again because they they love talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And just be prepared to have that answer to that question too, because they're probably going to come back to you and say, "Well, how about you?" So for me, for, for students, 18, 19, whatever, just start, go ahead and start and then just build it out. And then you can, as you build out your networks, you can then start thinking about, okay, is my network open or closed? Open means that do people in my network not know others in my network? A closed network means everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. So if everybody knows everybody in your network, you have a closed network. So you need to find people who you can bring into your network that don't necessarily know others that you know already. So that's an open network. You also want a diverse network. And again, you don't want everyone from an organizational standpoint, it would a, a, a diverse network would be, okay, if I'm in research, I have people in my network who are in marketing and in sales and in IT and in operations and all those things. But for an 18 to 19 year old student, diversity, you know, is, is are the people in my network, do I look at them and I say, okay, are these a diverse set of, of folks, not just in what you see in their social identity or their race or their gender, not just that. It's above that, their values, their beliefs, their their interests, how diverse can you be? And then deep, you want a deep network. You don't just want to know if I'm an 18, 19 year old, what dorm room uh, are they in? Or you know, where are they from originally? What are their values? What are their strengths? What are their goals in life? That's a deep network. So if you can start planting these seeds for yourself to have an open, diverse, and deep network as a college student, once you graduate from whatever institution you're in, you've got that odd network already. 
those people are going to be graduating with you. They're going to be holding the keys to so many things in life for you, just not just uh, for, for advice, uh, but also for maybe jobs or opportunities that are there. And you're going to do the same for them as well. You're going to be able to open doors for them too. Mm-hmm. So if you could do that as a, as, a, as a college or university student, once you start working in the world and you have that same mindset, you're going to be able to have these really strong networks that can enable you to do so many great things in your organization. Yeah. Yeah. I know those are great points. And, you know, one thing that I sometimes tell my MBA students is I I say, you know, part of your network is, uh, you know, the person on your right and your left. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it it may seem like a distant future, but, um, you know, you're going to blink and 10 years are going to go by and you're all going to be in much senior, more seniors positions than you are now. And you are going to be able to help each other. And, and here's the thing, like no one's going to want to do something great to help out the person who is crappy on the, on the group project, you know, yes, so do, doing that's great exactly work it. is good. Don't you know? be a tool sack in college, <laughs> right? Not because keg stands aren't fun, which they are. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> be engaged because when you go to hit somebody up, they're going to remember, like, wasn't that the numbskull that was always in his pajamas every day and his, the class hung over with, like, some spittle on his she- sleeve, you know? it's You don't, don't be that guy. Be the guy that's interesting, engaged, and going for it in life with some kind of theme. I mean, you can yeah. still work the keg stands right. in there, but you, you got to be somebody. <laughs> you're showing people you're a trusted quantity early mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And if that's the mindset you have, uh, as a 18 or 22 year old, that's going that that will just stay with you uh, for the rest of your life. And, uh, people will look, people will remember, and people will look up to you for that. Yeah, you know, you touched on it already, but I'd like to unpack it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You said, you know, that this networking thing, having an odd odd network, as you put it, uh, is very important not only for people who are kind of in this early stage of thinking about their careers and starting to get out there and, and look for jobs. Uh, but also for leaders really at every level. And, you know, uh, Chris and I have come across CEOs and we've talked to them where they haven't really done that. And then then it's like, oh, I, I don't really know how to resonate ideas with people because I don't mm-hmm. really have this or, or even just resources in the community. Like I, I need to talk to somebody who knows a lot about this area that I don't and see what they did and that kind of thing. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, as you increase or as you go up the, the organizational ladder in organizations, it's it gets lonelier and lonelier the, the higher yeah. you get. And the higher you get, yeah, granted, you know, the CEO technically has formal authority over every single person she or he, you know, is mm-hmm. looking over. But think about as you go up the, the hierarchy, if you're going to be like a director, a, a VP and on the executive team, you're going to have to be working with peers who you have no direct authority over. And they have their own agendas of what they want to do. You've got your own agendas of what you want to do. And if you haven't been able to really garner and enhance and develop an effective network, you're not going to have the ability to work across boundaries and and collaborate um, with with people. Uh, And that's why networking is so important, to be able to work across those boundaries and span those boundaries and be able to work with others who don't necessarily have the same vision or idea or, or goals that you have. Maybe and politically after you, they exactly. may be trying to stab you in the back. They could, they could. Yeah. And, and that's what politically being politically savvy or political skilled, politically skilled is really all about. The networking is a huge aspect of being politically skilled and being able to, to work across and collaborate with people whom you have no direct authority over, or sometimes how to work up and, and collaborate with those who have direct authority over you. Um, how can you do all those things effectively and not be seen as, as that you know, proverbial snake in the grass? That's why political savvy and, and, and networking, which is part of it, is so important, I think, now in organizations, too. As we get flatter, as we're working more uh, virtually, I think, I think it, it, it's only going to be needed even more. Uh, you lose that sense of, of when you are with someone across the table or at, I don't even like to. Be, you know, meet with someone across the table, you know, on the same side of the table, having a walking meeting so that you actually feel like that you're working together on something. You lose that sense of togetherness when you're going to be on a Zoom video or on a phone call. And a lot of organizations now, I mean, they're saying at least for the rest of the year, they're going to be like this. So how can we 
uh, as leaders be able to cultivate our networks and be seen as politically savvy and actually having known that political savvy or political skills actually a good thing. It's not actually a bad thing. It's a really good thing to be. It's a great quality or skill to have. Right. Yeah. One of the things with new directors, right? You just leave in that senior manager, manager role. You actually starting to get some PL responsibility. And now you're more, most likely the first time you're super cross-functionally involved mm-hmm. with other directors on your level. Well, how do you know if the guy to your left and right, how to interact with them? Well, if you... You can call your buddy that's in marketing and say, hey, you just stepped into a marketing director role. I'm over here in finance. How do I need to work with you? And you don't have to expose that lack of knowledge necessarily internal to the organization, but you're able to grab that information from your peers that are outside. Chris, that's exactly it. You know, I, I tell especially new leaders, there's nothing in your in your job requisition or, or your responsibility that says you need to be a mind reader. There's I've never <laughs> seen one. So... <laughs> Two things. You do it explicitly and implicitly. You do it explicitly by just calling and saying, hey, how should we work together? How, what, what do we need right. to do so that explicitly? And then implicitly is observing. So being highly observant of what people are doing and asking your networks, hey, you worked with this person. What sort of things do I need to talk about if I want to influence this person well? What sort of things do I need to do to be seen in a great light with this person? So doing it explicitly and implicitly it's the same thing I talk with uh, with new managers. It's like when you inherit a team or when you're building your own team, you better have a conversation the first week with every single person on your staff saying, OK, this is who I am. I want to know more about you. What are your talents? Why do you come to work every day? What do you love doing on your job? You know, how do you like to be communicated with? Do you want to be included in meetings? That sort of thing. Just get to know them and know what they want to do. It'll make your life easier going forward. And you don't have to read their minds. You could just actually understand what they want uh because they're telling you yeah Yeah. so many people just think execs just get this or they just had it preternaturally but what they don't know is they have that diverse network that they're pulling like first time hey hey bill how do i deal i just got a call from an executive recruiter how how does executive recruitment work yeah and and they're behind the scenes building their brains and their assets and their skills up anyway yep I was so thankful when I stepped into this position here at High Point. Again, I, I I went to graduate school, so I was like quant geeky researcher. I worked at the Center for Creative Leadership for almost 12 years, quant geeky researcher, trainer. I did all those things. Now I'm here. I didn't grow up, quote unquote, grow up in the education field. And I know a lot of people in university settings that are in these types of offices have like an EDD or they went through the education part yeah, of, right. of, of things. So I was very thankful that through my network on LinkedIn, for instance, and people who knew people in the industry, it's very thankful that when I call and say, hey, can I talk to you for 30 minutes for an hour just about how is your team set up? How is your office set up? I mean, there are career services that are an office of one. There are Mm -hmm. career services that are office of 12 in just one school. So it's just it's it's such a broad way of, of going about what career services are. But being able to to draw on people who've been in this was such a huge help for me. And now, you know, during this time, I might not have heard from him from a while. Uh, now I'm able in a point where, okay, I've been here in this position for a couple of years. How can I give back and reach out to them? Say, hey, here's some things we're doing at High Point. What can we do to help you in terms of what you're thinking about when you might have students who are now not going to be on campus or other programs that we're doing that might be able to help you spur on other uh, engagement opportunities for your students? So. Having that network, not just in that organization, but building it throughout your, it's these strategic relationships. Kathy Cram, who's very knowledgeable about mentors, she talks about having developmental networks and strategic relationships. So how can you have these people in your networks that are strategic, that are not just in your organization, but are in all sorts of different aspects of your life? It's been very helpful for me because you never know who they might know. And that's how I've been able to understand more about career services from people in my network and from people saying, Hey, you need to talk to this person and reaching out to them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other thing that I'm curious to get your take on, um, before we go and talk about your book, even more <laughs> explicitly, cause I really want to do that too. Uh, but I'd like to just think about careers in general and, you know, people have a lot of different jobs. You know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics had a report that came out last year, um, which actually looked at younger baby boomers. So, you know, people who are um, actually older than than all of us on this podcast right now are probably, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
and it said that those folks, nearly half of them, or they had uh, an average of 12.3 jobs between the ages of 18 and 52. Um, nearly half of those were between 18 and 24. So people do change jobs a lot. Yeah. And I would suspect, I haven't seen any other data you know, on younger generations, but it seems like there's more fluidity now uh, than there than there used to be. But there's always been quite a bit of churn there. But, you know, but you is there, I don't, yeah, I, I don't is know. Is there do really? Know? Because when I look at that, Ben, when you said 12.3 jobs, there seems to be this, collective social myth that somehow the boomers they got out of college if they went but they didn't have to go to college they <laughs> stayed in a job they a company watch and they're they're good right but 12.3 jobs which half of them so that's basically six jobs between the age of 18 to 24 that's a job a year pretty much yeah yeah we, i i think we do see a lot of our outgoing students who have graduated, they are probably um, looking at other jobs. You know, that first job out of college, what I tell students about what you should do for that first job out of college, you better be able to learn the most about yourself and learn the most about the world of work in your first job. Mm -hmm. And then use that knowledge to see, okay, is this a place I want to stay in? Or after I get my my foundation of, okay, this is how the world works. And this is how I can actually function in the world of work. I mean, High Point University is known for its, for its residence halls. And we've got, it's such a beautiful campus. There are other campuses out there that are known for similar things too. Life is not like that. Once you step outside, it is not. And <laughs> Sad it is to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's everything from even, okay, how, what's my sleep and how do I get the amount of sleep that I need and what is my routine and how is that going to work? Cause I don't have to go to just two or three classes a day. I'm, I might have to go in early or stay late or on weekends. How, how, how does this work? That's why I think internships are so important, not just informational interviews, but internships just to get the feel of what work is really like in that realistic job preview. And if you can get that through informational interviews and internships, what a wonderful foundation to have. But if you are trying to think about your first job and then you kind of stay in there for a couple of years, you understand, OK, this is how I need to function. This is who I am going to be as professional. And this is how the world of work, of work works. Can I see myself staying in this organization for the next 10, 15 years? Do they see me as someone who is part of the growth of this organization? And if they don't seem to see that, I think that's when students uh, or, or in this case, you know, young professionals start looking at other places uh, to go. Right. And they should. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. don't yeah. don't listen. Anybody that says, hey, buddy, you need to take this entry level job and you just need to stay here for at least 10 years that, you know, that's not how capitalism works. But, <laughs> you know, don't you feel guilty if, if you've got another opportunity, you've built your skill sets and you can, you know, hook it up for some more cash. Get on it. Yeah. Feel good <laughs> about that. Now, I will say that in some of our assessments that we give, uh, again, these are all assessments that are highly reliable, highly valid. Um, there's a place for the MBTI, and I know a lot of career services uses the MBTI or the focus or, or these certain things, and there's a place for those. When I came in, I said, that's not the place that I want our office to be. I wanted more reliable, valid measures yeah. and reliable, valid assessments that specifically says we have years and years of data and research to show that if you have these certain profiles, these types of jobs from ONET. That, that so let's up. pause and talk about yeah. that for a minute. For we're not for our listening audience that aren't professionals around that. What is the M MBTI? Yeah. MBTI Myers-Briggs type indicator. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a very powerful tool to, for people to know and understand their personality. Is it power? Cause I heard Myers-Briggs was full of crap. Uh, so first off I am, uh, as, I'm certified to give that tool. Okay. And there is a place for it. I just think, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, for our office and career services, I thought that Myers-Briggs was not the right place for it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about how, how, how people can understand more about themselves, so more about self-awareness. Mm -hmm. If you think about maybe teamwork or collaboration or the way that they communicate, I think that could be a really good tool for people to use in that case for selection. No, mm -hmm. uh, for, because the, the data says it's no good for selection. That's right. right. And that's why yeah. I wanted, uh, I wanted a platform that we were able to, to work with that were made by Iowa psychologists. So I mm -hmm. trust them <laughs> yeah. that, Hey, th if you know, this is the, 
profile that you have based on your interest, your values, your personality, and your workplace preferences. Yeah, like the bit some of the big fives issues. Exactly. Right? And in yeah. fact, the, the personality um assessment that we use on the platform, it's the Hexaco model, which is the big five plus honesty slash humility. Mm-hmm. So it's highly reliable, highly valid. And and Chris, to the point that I was uh, that I was going to get to, one of the values, or I should say the workplace preferences that I have is stability. I value an organization that wants to keep its people. Uh, and I mm-hmm. tell when I when I teach my career exploration class here, uh, I tell my students, this is what the reason why. And when I remember very clearly, um, it was the uh, first day of summer uh, from college. So I just finished out my freshman year at Emory, drove home the two hours to Chattanooga. My girlfriend at the time was going to come visit me for a week. So it was going to be great. You know, it's going to be the summer. I didn't have I didn't start my internship yet or my jobs there. And so she was going to come and we actually get to spend some time together. We didn't have to worry about school or anything. I get home that day. Uh, my mom, who had worked at this company literally from the mail room since uh, for that time, 20 plus years and worked her way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was let go. Uh, oh. They had a major reduction in force. And you could and back in the 90s, they did a lot of that because they were, you know, streamlining things and getting things down. And of course, a lot of the older workers, of course, they were let go. And from that day, I knew that I wanted to make sure that I worked in a place that would never do that for me. Um, And so I highly value an organization that is uh, that that stability is important, where you don't see a lot of people getting riffed or getting laid off or getting Mm -hmm. fired. I want to. So I'm in the I, I see myself as kind of in the minority that I actually want to work in an organization and grow in that organization. I don't take change very well. And I want to see myself <laughs> nice flourish in an organization. So I'm kind of on the on the lower end of that bell curve, if you will, of people who change jobs. So I've had, you know, uh, since graduate school, I've been in three different places, um, you know, CCL for almost 12 years, a place that didn't really work out. Uh, and here now for three, and I've already told, you know, the president here and the administrators and stuff, Ellie Rose is coming here uh, in 16 years when she's 18. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't have a reason to leave. Yeah, I love it here. And the great thing about High Point University for me, they saw my talent, my skill set, and they allowed me to say, hey, here's the office, grow it. And mm-hmm. that was what was really powerful for me. That's visionary. Exactly. That's visionary. They gave me the, the responsibilities. They said, grow it, develop it. And so I've got that opportunity to build something. And that in my career at the time, that's what I wanted to do. So back in you know 2017, when I left CCL, I wanted a chance to grow something, to build something. So I left CCL for an opportunity that didn't work out. And I was like, okay, what's next in my life for the next 30 years? This was open. So I get the opportunity yeah. to do that. And what's so awesome about that story you just told is it kind of built from this foundation of self-awareness and understanding something about yourself and what you yeah. wanted, right? Yeah. I think that and that's a really fundamental thing that is is very important for us you know, to always be thinking about as we're going through our careers and lives. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I want to add something here. If you're a university and you don't have science-driven assessment and career helping tools, you're behind the curve. Bill Gentry's leading the way. You need to follow suit because (laughs) these these are guidance, advice, direction that can impact your future student body's lives. And it's going to determine the kind of alumni you're going to... It's going to start a super virtuous cycle. But... and. I'm not going to call specific names out, but I've dealt with so many of this stuff where it's just garbage. Well, here's our alumni network. Maybe you want to call somebody. That's that's the level of immaturity that's unacceptable in the modern workplace that is facing volatility, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And science is a way to win. And and Bill Gentry's winning over there. <laughs> we're trying. We're, go Bill. We're, we're building it. We've we've yeah. got. We still have a long way to go. Um. And but we are building it. And the and just like you said, if we get better students into campus uh, as freshmen and we work with them, they're going to be better educated and they're going to set the world on fire when they graduate. They'll be seen as better alums who will want to help our students. And the higher that they that parents and in prospective students see that you know these graduates at High Point University, they are doing something. I want to be like that just 
the rising tide is going to lift all of us here. At the and the science University. will reduce the amount of pain you have to inevitably yeah. suffer to find where you need to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it also, it's not going to be hundred percent perfect. No science is, uh, unless it's like, you know, two plus two is always going to equal four, <laughs> but you know, there are people that might actually say, no, there's they didn't go into that stuff. Yeah. Theoretical <laughs> um, math. Yeah, exactly. But more often than not, it's a really good starting point for a student. And, you know, from my research and leadership, the most effective leaders are self-aware. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. They're willing to improve. Working with us in career in our career professional development office, you get a really great way to understand who you are. And that's a really great foundation to springboard into other things that you can do in your life. So that's why having assessments that are really highly reliable, valid, proven, um, we want that to help with our students' self-awareness. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So one thing that we have to ask about careers is uh, COVID, right? So COVID has had a huge impact on the job market, on employment. Um, that's probably the understatement of the year right there. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, what's your advice for folks looking for jobs right now um, for first time job seekers? Is there a, you know, a pandemic proof career out there? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, a lot of the folks in the media are saying these pandemic proof jobs. So, um, you know, retail well not retail but like you know Harris the supermarkets uh and uh the, the Walmarts of the world the Amazons of the world that sort of thing that that's a kind of a pandemic proof job if you kind of think on the surface maybe it's working in uh, hospitals or working uh, in healthcare those are pandemic proof jobs but if you kind of dig deeper particularly in the healthcare sector I have noticed and seen a lot of folks get um furloughed uh lose their jobs in the healthcare sector it, and it's really all this COVID stuff is really kind of more on the front lines. Yeah, that's a pandemic safe mm -hmm. job. For instance, you're always going to have it. But there are many healthcare jobs that have been lost during this time as well. So I tell my students and I tell anyone looking for a job, you need to try to pandemic proof your career. What sort of skills can you have that can be transferable to any career? What sort of KSAs, knowledge, skills, abilities do you need? You know, communication, influence, being politically savvy, being able to collaborate well. Uh, having some integrity and, and character and thinking about how you, uh, you know, uh, brand yourself. Those are things that are transferable to any career. So if you're able to have those sorts of KSAs, you're going to be much more valuable to any organization because they want people who are able to, who have had an experience and a track record of communicating well, collaborating well, um, you know, influencing well. That's the types of things they want. So I tell my students and I tell others, it's not about trying to find a certain job. It's about making sure that you have the skills necessary so that you are marketable for so many different jobs out there. So that's kind of the difference. It's not about trying to find a pandemic proof job. It's about pandemic proofing your own career. Excellent. Excellent. So I'd like to move on a little bit and talk about your book because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so as I mentioned in your bio, um, so Bill Gentry wrote a book called Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For, A Guide for New Leaders. It's a great book. It's evidence-based. Go buy it. We'll put the link to- Show them your uh, copy. Yeah. Look, look at this. I, I have it right this here. This book is so dog-eared. Yeah. So I, I mean- <laughs> it You can mistake it for the Dead Sea Scroll. It's just been used <laughs> so much. Well, and that's because, um, so I came to Cleveland State University, uh, you know, fall of 2016, which is right, your book came out in August yeah. of 2016. Yeah. And I was like- I'm teach this class on leadership. I was like, oh, I need to use Bill's new book. And uh, so I've been using it for that class ever since. And, and it's been fantastic. My students love it. Um, I like it a lot because it is evidence-based. It's grounded in research uh, and provides some actionable uh, advice for people as they're moving into first-time leadership roles and even way beyond, right? The stuff you talk about is not just for first-time leaders. It's very applicable there. It's also applicable across a, the kind of the spectrum of leadership. Um, I, I guess... Well, you know, why did you write this book? Um, you know, what, why this topic? What are your, mm -hmm. what's been the reception that you've gotten uh, from it, you know, from folks who have bought it and so forth? Yeah. So around 2010 is when I really got interested in that population of leaders, those who have never led before, who did all the work, who did it really well. They got all the raises and bonuses and promotions and accolades and, and they got the spotlight all the time. And because they did all that, they're the ones who get promoted in leadership. And what I saw a lot of were people like, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. And also they thought that, okay, I'm, I'm this, I'm this leader now. They stopped doing the things that got them into leadership. Uh, or I should say, 
they kept on doing the things that got them into leadership mm-hmm. and they couldn't make that transition to being a leader. You know, classic salesperson who does all the things that get promoted to head of sales and they can't let go of being a salesperson and they can't start to have the identity of being a leader of sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't have that dopamine hit of closing a deal. You know, right. boom, there is right. a million bucks. Boom, there's another million bucks. Yep. And said it's, and now I need to put together this dashboard for my sales <laughs> team. <That's report>. Right. <laughs> Look at how and, pretty the font is. Sorry, not and, the same it, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the same with an accountant, a scientist, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever roles it is. And I started looking at, you know, the data that was there. Um, you know, I think monster.com said something about, 60% of people who got promoted in their first uh, leadership position on almost 60% never got any training or development. Cause it costs wow. money and time. Yeah. And companies don't want to pay for it. Uh, and, and they want to focus on, and they focus on mid to senior level executives who've already had 15 to 20 plus years of leadership experience. Oh yeah. Let me interject something there. Yeah. When you look at budgets, Oh, I'm sorry. We only pay for coaches and consultants for our VP and above executives. And like some of those guys have networks at that point that could help them out. But that new director, like the derailment, we talk about this book, the first 90 mm-hmm. days. Are you familiar with that book? Yeah. 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 The the amount of people that fail in their first position are huge and they lo- often don't get another at bat, but they were, right. they had all the skills, talent, ability, high potential, new leader development, man, these guys are going to be great. And then like, have fun with that. No, we're just going to throw you in the ocean. Swim, Jack Wagon. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was at CCL, we we, we looked across the board and the research that we did was we saw that almost that that 50% of leaders were ineffective in their role. 50%, one out of every two. So that's if we're not training leaders. And in fact, there's another one. I love this one from Zinger Falkman. They said that the, and I use this a lot with my students Mm. to kind of put a level set of what should the expectation be about when you graduate from here. The average age of a person to get his or her first leadership role, like formalized supervisory, whatever role, is 30. So I tell my students, it's going to probably take you eight years on average. Some of you is going to be quicker. You know, it's, it's an average. But it's probably on average going to take you eight years to get your actual first leadership position. So you're not going to get the corner. And they're crying. They're crying, right? They're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then we talk about. How can you set yourself up to be on that fast track so it's less than eight years? Let me plug this. If you want a leadership position right now, join the National Guard or the U.S. Army. (laughs) Your first role or the (laughs) Navy or the Air Force. Your first role will be in charge of about 20 to 40 people. It will take you about 15 to 20 years to get that in the (laughs) – anyway, go ahead, Bill. (laughs) Plug in the Army here. (laughs) And the Navy. (laughs) <laughs> and the nation. <laughs> so their first role, leadership leadership role is 30. The average age of a person to get his or her first leadership development experience is 42. Oh my God. So for 12 years, 12 years. Sink or swim. Yeah, you go do it. So for me, it's like, that's, that's not. That's possible. a blind spot, corporations. Go do yeah. pushups for that blind spot. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to help. So if leaders aren't getting it from their own organization, I want to try to do something to help them even if it was a, you know, 20 ish dollar book. And, and I wanted a book to where if these leaders were reading it, it's not about the theory because you can't apply theory in the now. Okay. Yeah. Here's the theory. Okay. That's fine. But here is how it actually looks like. And here's what you should do. And here's the, and here's how Bill Gentry, who was at the time of writing, this was promoted into his first leadership role. Here's how he has screwed up. Here's how things that you know, even though he's a researcher and he knows exactly what the research says, he's still a person and a human. And here's some things that he's learned by doing these things right and doing these things wrong or totally missing the boat on certain things. So putting all those things together, the theory, the practice and the art, really. Uh, and you're qualified as together. a scientist to do the review of the literature and to put this into a context that people can actually use. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to have at the end of each chapter, I have this thing called the coach's corner where mm. here are some questions to think deeper about it for your own self. And here are two things based on this chapter that you can do in the next two weeks, in the next 90 days uh, to actually, you know, put the stuff that you just read into practice. So you can actually see it being done and you can actually improve yourself, particularly, as I said, 
when you're not getting any help from HR or talent development or whatever, and there's no programs for you. And the way the leadership development, um, you know, uh, sector is right now, a lot of it's going to be online and a lot of it's only just going to be pointed towards certain critical roles right now, because that's kind of where we are in life. So what can you do and how can you own your development? And I think that's one of the things that I tell our students here and I tell anyone who's interested in the train development field, a person has to take control of his or her own professional development going yeah. forward. They can't rely on a third party vendor. They can't rely on their organization. They've got to take control. And if you have questions or you want to do it, go to your HR person, go to your talent development person, ask and say, hey, I've had some ideas. If, if they're not there, ask your peers. Why not start a book club? Why not you know, do something uh, for peers in your organization that are in a similar um, that are similarly working as a leader for the first time. Right. Why not build that peer network or those peer, um, those peer coaches? What a, do it on your own. Be proactive. About yeah, it. yeah. Get all of your friends who are in a similar situation together. All of you go buy Bill's book and then <laughs> talk about it on a daily basis and uh, and get better. I, I I and I'm I'm laughing a little bit, but I'm serious. I think that that would help. Um, go with because, the science. No, yeah, go and, and with no, the science. Don't buy the the latest CEO's book that says how to put on a suit and look good, but be full of fluff. I mean, that's, that's right. so many of the books. Get a book by an actual IO site guy or somebody that's has some. Ev anyway, we, yeah. we preach that, but so, we got to keep going until we stop seeing all these bad books. That's <laughs> right. That's right. So a big theme in the book is this idea. You kind of use it as a metaphor throughout. It's this idea of flipping your script. Um, yeah. What's that about? And what do you mean by that? We all have scripts in our lives. It's like, you know, a television actor or a play, you know, theater, musical, whatever. The script that so many of us live in life, and there's nothing wrong with this script, is uh, a script that I heard a lot about uh, in relationships. It's not you, it's me. Um, that was told to me a lot uh, in my life. And that's and nicer that than means... the script I got. It was like, don't even talk to me, buddy. Uh oh. In an organizational sense, so getting away from the relationship in kind of a professional organizational standpoint, what the it's not you, it's me script is, is it's exactly what makes us successful in organizations. It's me coming in early, me staying late, my skills, my talents, my personality, uh, you know, my work ethic, all those things that have made me successful, even ever since I was a little kid, what got me great grades, what got me into college, what got me my first job, or the, me, myself, and I focusing on myself. It's not about you. It's about me. And that's what gets us raises and bonuses and promotions in the spotlight. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that script at all. Nothing. Until you get promoted into leadership. And what so often happens is when you get promoted into leadership, you think, okay, my script in life, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm going to keep living it. And I think that's one of the reasons why one of every two managers are ineffective in their role. That's why derailment is such a, a critical factor in organizational life. They don't, quote unquote, flip their script. And if you're unable to flip your script and say, you know what, my former script is not you, it's me, worked until I was a leader. As a leader, I have to flip my script and say, okay, as a leader, it's not about me anymore. Mm. I have to be less me-focused and more we-focused. If you're able to flip your script and do that and say, my success is not about my own success as a leader. My success as a leader is about my team's success. If they are successful, that's what's going to make me successful. That's what's going to get me the actual raises and bonuses, promotions, how effective my team is, how effective my coworkers around me are. Do they see me as someone who's collaborative that can work well? That's what's going to make me successful. So flipping my script and saying it's not about me anymore. If, if there's one thing that you get out from our, from our uh, conversation that we have today, if you're able to flip your script and say it's not about me anymore, you're going to do much better in sort of every single action, decision, behavior you are as a leader if that's your mantra, if that's your script, it's not about me anymore. You're going to be much more effective. You yeah. got to run both scripts. So you, you can't not have some kind of expertise or technical excellence at the individual contributor level. Level. Everyone will yeah. pretty much be an individual contributor at that. some yeah. point. But, and I like that, like that idea of script and IT. You know, you need to run... Well, if you need your email, you run the email software. So you need the individual <laughs> contributor, you run the individual contributor software. Yeah. But I've sat in so many interviews with managers, executives, where, okay, so what do you think you would add to this role? Like, I don't know. I want to make some more money. 
You're like, wait a minute. Do you have any like facilitation skills, scheduling skills, ninja um, skills, ninja skills, <laughs> skills with the sword and the axe? You know, <laughs> are you a wizard plus five? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I think it, absolutely. And um, you know, one other big idea in the book, and something you've already mentioned here, Bill, is this idea of derailment. And uh, just, I suppose, quickly for our listeners, what is derailment and some of the causes of it? How can we uh, maybe avoid it? I mean, one of the big ways you can avoid it is by reading and doing what's in the book. But other ways that you can uh, avoid derailment. So derailment's been around for decades. Uh, Center for Creative Leadership was one of the first, uh, one of the first to, to really focus in on, you know, what causes derailment. Define, derailment it, define is, it. Yes, good. Yeah, derailment is when a person had all the abilities and all the promise of, of going up the organizational ladder, being at the very top of the organization, but somehow their career flamed out, they burned out, they got demoted early, they got fired, they hit a career plateau and they just couldn't keep moving up and they just kind of stayed where they are. And they saw that there were several behaviors of derailed executives. And those behaviors really deal with, I think, you know, not being able to flip their script. So think about it. One of the key behaviors of leaders who were an, unable to flip their, uh, who, who derailed, what's they call um, too narrow functional orientation. Yeah. What too narrow functional orientation is, is the computer programmer who is really great at computer programming. He has to now manage other computer programmers and he or she can't get out of the, head, the mindset of computer programming. And that's all that person does. Even as a leader, you have to be able to get out of that functional mindset. If you're a salesperson, it's not about selling anymore. If you're a researcher, it's not about doing the research anymore. How are you leading those people? So, you know, too narrow functional orientation, uh, problems with interpersonal relationships, that's the lone wolf. That's the my way or the highway. That's the, I'm going to do it all myself. That's the one who is cold and aloof. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, assessment questions that gets to it that, that CCL puts forth that, that I really like is leaving a trail of, of, bruised people behind, uh, you know, <laughs> those types of leaders, those, if you tend to do those things, you're probably on the way to derailment. Uh, you can't lead a team well. So not being able to actually lead that team, uh, your business results, you can't actually, if you're, you got PL and you're not able to do that, Hey, you know, right. You're toast. I mean, so those are some of the behaviors of these derailed executives. And sometimes derailment is out of our control. Think about, think about my mom, for instance, um, the whole reason she, her, position was like, oh, the company started merging with other companies. And when you start merging and you have mergers and acquisitions, some jobs are going to let go. So it's, you know, sometimes it's not your fault, right. but a lot of times it is. Yeah. And so you can only you control able... the stuff that's your fault anyway. That's right. Control the controllables. Yeah. And so derailment is something you definitely can control. And if you're on a path to derailment, you can definitely get off that path to derailment if you are willing to do it. Great. Great. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's definitely an important thing for all of us to be aware of kind of at every level within our careers. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I guess what are some of the other big things that, that have really resonated with folks from your book um, that, that you really think people should be aware of? I think the ability uh, to know that you can make a difference. Um, I, I tell my, I tell new leaders all the time, when I'm working with them, training them, whatever, you being a new leader, so many of the people that are working for you are thinking about fresh out of college. They might be in their first job. You might be the leader, their, their first leader they've ever had. Right. So what sort of image of leadership are you portraying? Because everyone almost can remember the first person they've ever had as a supervisor. Mm. And that is going to color and influence their thoughts about leadership for the next 50, 60 years of their life. Yeah. So what are you doing to make sure that they see what leaders can be? So that's one thing that I think um, I hope people get out of the book that, that I've had people talk about. Another thing I hope that they have uh, that, that you can get out of the book by reading it is there's so many great stories about, you know, me personally, but others who've gone through these certain, certain things. You're not alone. Uh, when you're new to leadership, you are not alone. There are other people out there. There are people in your organization that are going through the same sorts of things. Um, be be proactive and ask for help. And, and asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a strength. I tell that to my fellows, my leadership fellows here. I tell that to the students we work with. 
tell that to new leaders. I tell that to anybody asking for help. Tiger Woods still has a yes. swing coach. Yep. Yep. That's right. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength, particularly for leaders. Uh, we're not expected to know everything. So ask for help. Uh, and then finally, I think one of the things that uh, I was really proud of in the book was one of the last examples that I talk about is Jack uh, in the book. And Jack's a real person. His actual name is, is Jack. And when you read the book, you find out kind of why I put him in there. But long story short, Jack was able to know in his role that he was able to make a difference to the lives of leaders, even in his role at the distribution center at the Center for Creative Leadership, even in his role of getting things off the shelf and packaging it away. He knew that if he did not do his job in the distribution center, he was not helping leaders get better. He could clearly see how mm -hmm. his job was developing leaders. Mm. And so as leaders, our job is to develop other people. And I think you can do that from a leadership role, whether you coach them, develop them, mentor them, advise them, whatever role is from your leadership role, you have the powerful opportunity to help people get better, to help people fulfill their mission of their own personal life, to help people feel that they can make a difference in the world. And I'm sure Jack's leaders did that with him, the distribution center. I get the chance to do that here with 18 to 22 year olds every single day. Um, I get the chance to do that with, with new leaders who, you know, in trainings or whatever, that's a really powerful experience to help set that mindset of you can actually fulfill someone's potential and make them feel like that they're special, make them feel like that they are contributing to the world. And that's what leaders have the power to do. Cause they are, cause they are, everyone can contribute. Yeah. yeah. And can contribute effectively, so great. uh, positively. Uh, to the world around us. Awesome. Awesome. So mm -hmm. are there any places on the web where people can go and find out more about you, your work, what you're up to? Yeah. So uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to, to connect with folks there. If you had a personal message, one of the things that I've come to know uh, with LinkedIn, there's the whole kind of, you know, default, Hey, I want to connect with you. Um, so many people don't even just ignore those and don't connect. We want to, a lot of people on LinkedIn want to get even, even the smallest of personal messages. Mm -hmm. That always helps when you're trying to network with people. So making sure to add some sort of personal right. message on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, websites, williamgentryleads.com. Uh, you can find some more stuff about me there. Uh, and then I'm at High Point University. Uh, if you're ever thinking about um, uh, thinking, you know, what does High Point University look like? Looking more, looking more at what we do here. Uh, if you want to learn more about how we're helping students, uh, how we're interacting with employers as well, you know, our office doesn't just help students. Our office actually also wants to connect with employers and say, hey, you know, tell us about your uh, pipeline. Tell us about your future internships and jobs and what types of students you are wanting to work in those internships and what types of qualities you're seeking for your organizations. We want to be we want to be able to be seen as a really great pool of possible applicants for those interns and jobs, too. So we have that dual role of working with students, but also that other side working with the organizations to see that, hey, you have a powerful population pool of, of future leaders in your organization here at High Point University. Outstanding. And, and Bill's got evidence-based routes for matching. Yeah, right? that's right. So you're less likely to draw a numbskull out of <laughs> <Yeah>. his pool. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Bill. Uh, just thank you so much for being our guest today on the Indigo Podcast. I'm, I'm really honored. It's been, it's been awesome to, uh, to talk with you all for, for the time that we've had. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.